How do I know what I think until I see what I say? The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the Green Notebook of Arthur Brooks. This is the episode that a lot of leaders, especially those serving in the military, need to hear because it's about the connection between success and happiness and how we often confuse the two with damaging results. Arthur recently published an important book called From Strength to Strength that's about finding success, happiness, and deep purpose in the second half of life. In this powerful discussion, we talk about topics to include achievement addiction, getting stuck on the hedonic treadmill, and why leadership can be such a lonely place. If this interview caused you to pause and think about your own professional career, I encourage you to check out his book, From Strength to Strength, and Arthur's popular series at The Atlantic titled, How to Build a Better Life. So grab your green notebooks, and please welcome to the show, Arthur Brooks. Hey, Joe. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm, uh, I've, I've been looking forward to this interview for the last couple of months, ever since I read From Strength to Strength. And we actually have a connection because you worked in the field that, that I'm in tangentially, right? Yeah, I've done a lot of different things, actually. I've done some military stuff and I've done work in academia. I've been a professional musician. I you know, teach happiness. I do public speaking. So I've, done, I've had a Whitman sampler type of career, actually. Had a lot of different challenges, all toward, with the idea of lifting people up and bringing them together with truth and beauty and love and happiness. I love that. But like before you started down this current path, you were actually head of a major think tank in D.C., right? Yeah, I was the president of the American Enterprise Institute for about 11 years, 10, 10 and a half, 10 years and six months to the day, as a matter of fact. And so I started that in the beginning of 2009 in the teeth of the Great Recession, and I finished up in, in the middle of 2019. In doing that, I imagine it was very uh, socially rewarding because I, I would imagine there's a lot of uh, events you go to and people recognize you and want to get office calls with you. Uh, it's socially rewarding. It's, it's like running a big nonprofit, basically. 
what my job was, was giving 175 speeches a year, flying all over the place and raising $50 million a year to support the organization, the scholars. Because what a think tank is, it's like a university without students. So I had 310 employees. A lot of them were scholars and staff and communications people and trying to you know, do research to get us better public policy, better foreign policy, military policy, economic policy, education, health, everything in between. And that, you know, that was a big beast. That was 50 million bucks a year. So, you know, it sounds to be the president of the American Enterprise Institute, the center of Washington, D.C., it sounds a little sexier than it was. It was mostly like running for the Senate and never getting elected. (laughs) Speeches and raising money. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I guess, like, what made you walk away from that? Because I, you know, I, I see it all the time in the military, too. You know, people rise to the top of the organization and there's a lot of, you know, I guess, ego stroking and uh, there's always the next thing. And I know a lot of people struggle with just walking away from that. Well, part of it is I had studied leaders' careers. It's what I did before I became president of AI. I was a college professor. I taught for 10 years, most of it at Syracuse. And I was doing a lot of work on leadership and studying the careers of great leaders and looking at the data on their effectiveness. And what you find with people who are in chief executive leadership jobs, whether that's commanding officers in the military or CEOs, whether it's the presidents of universities or other nonprofits, it's all pretty similar Insofar as that if you're there for less than five years, you can't actually, you can't build a vision and make it come to life. But you only get one vision. Everybody gets one vision, one big vision. And what happens is if you haven't instantiated that vision within 10 years, it's not going to happen, man. And so the result is that more than 10 and you're kind of doing what you've done again and again. It might be good and all that, but the biggest problem that you see is you don't get a big new vision, but you start getting tired and usually you don't know it. And the way that that is manifest in the careers of most leaders is after about 10 years, they stop doing the parts of their job they don't like. Now, one of the things that, you know, you're a commanding officer. I mean, you're, you've got hundreds and hundreds of people that are, that are reporting to you. And one of the things that you know is you're hiring people constantly. And they're very talented, very hardworking people. They'll do what you ask them to do. But you should never hire somebody to do a job that they don't want to do. Always hire people to do jobs that they want to do. And why? Because their skills and their passions need to actually be coincident if you want to have star performers. So what you're looking for is people who can do something, but there's a million people who can do stuff. And then you want to find deeply what they want to be doing and then put them in those roles. Well, your number one employee, Joe, is Joe. And therefore, you better put yourself in a job that you want to do or guess what? You won't do it. And after about 10 years, chief executives get real tired of two or three parts of their jobs they don't really love. And they just kind of wander away from them. So I'd seen all those. I'd seen these patterns. I'd published on it. I published articles saying, don't stay in more than 10. And I knew somebody was going to remind me of these publications. And so I said, well, I guess I got to eat my own cooking. And I retired at 10 and a half years. Wow. That's amazing. And I love it. I'm really, uh, I love talking about the, it's not, it's not a Jerry Seinfeld quote, but it's what Jerry did. You know, when Seinfeld was at the top of the ratings, yeah. uh, he just walked away from it. He didn't, yeah. uh, he didn't hang on till, you know, the demise was well, of the show was well into, uh, you know, into existence. Yeah. Well, there's basically, there's a stardom and leadership and all these highly exalted positions that everybody thinks that they want. They don't really want it. They just think that they want it. But I mean, it's like you're a commanding officer of a battalion of in the army and people are like, oh, it'd be awesome. It's like, trust me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it's it looks good on paper, right? But it's a tough slog day to day, right? I mean, it's hard. 
Yeah, it, it goes back to you really have to want it. Right. You have to really love the verb right. in order to be the noun. And uh, yeah. I've met way too many people who were obsessed with the noun and they just hated day-to-day life. Yeah, they want to be CEO, but they, want, they don't want to do CEO. <laughs> yeah. But the key thing to keep in mind is that you got two choices about, I mean, when you're in a sexy, high-pressure, high-prestige job, you're going to leave it sooner or later, obviously. I mean, unless, you know, the, the rapture comes and the world ends around us or some weird thing like that. But I'm a Catholic. I don't even believe in the rapture. But you get my point that you're going to leave it. And so the, the, the truth is that of these jobs, there's only two ways to leave. One is before you're ready, and the second is on somebody else's terms. Now, you know what those things mean. I mean, one is like, hey, man, I'm in the zone, I'm doing so well, I'm making good money, boys all the time, I'm getting articles in the paper. Somebody else's terms means, hey, Joe, you know, your decision-making isn't as crisp as it once was, or, you know, <laughs> whatever you hear, and they show you the door, right? So, so you choose, basically, is what it comes down to. You choose. And I chose, and Jerry Seinfeld chose, and, and a lot of good leaders chose to leave before they're ready because that's better for them and it's better for the organization. I actually know Jerry Seinfeld a little bit, and I've asked him about that. I said, yep, yeah. you get to the point where you're trying to be conscious of you know, what the cadence of this thing is, and you ask yourself, have we done our best work? And if the answer is, yeah, I've done my best work, then it's time to do something else and clear the space for somebody else. I love that. And one of the things when I came into the army, everybody said that the definition of success is when you reach 05 command, battalion level command. And as I was coming up, I watched people reach that, but then they move the goalpost on themselves to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And then finally, that's exactly what happened. Somebody told them to find, that, they, hey, they're not meeting the standard anymore and it's, it's time to leave and go do something different. And uh, it was like all the sacrifices, all the successes they had no longer mattered when they got to that point. Yeah. And what they remember is the shove. They don't remember the good times so very well. They remember, you know, getting the boot. I mean, I guarantee you that 20 years from now, Boris Johnson is going to be talking about those SOBs in his party that were disloyal to him. You know, that, that's what he's going to remember. You know, Jimmy Carter, what does he think about his presidency? The day he didn't, he got, you know, kicked out of office and not reelected. I mean, this is, I mean, who knows? Maybe some people are just so superior to these earthly things. But, no, but there's a lot of research, a lot of social science research that shows that I can give you a permanent memory of the most fun evening out with your wife and friends the most permanent memory is the last thing that happened. So you had a great night together. And at the very end, you like your, your buddy's wife, like got into like a kind of a said a kind of a nasty thing to you. And it turned out sort of ugly and it was awkward and you walked away. That's what you'd remember for the rest of the night. And that's because of the imprinting, the memory imprints that we have on the basis of the last experience. So make your own last experience is the bottom line. Don't let somebody else make the last experience for you. That is awesome. So one of the problems that you talk about in the book with that is uh, continuing to chase those next assignments, those next rungs, uh, is this concept called the hedonic treadmill, which yeah. I, I love, Arthur. Yeah. So what's an interesting thing, you know, on the first day of my class at Harvard Business School, I teach a class called Leadership and Happiness. And it's a really popular class because, you know, happiness, free candy, kids. And so I got, <laughs> you know, 180 MBAs and I got 400 on the waiting list. 
And on the first day, I cold call them. I say, you know, what is happiness? I make them define it. They always get it wrong. And then I say, what would make you truly happy? And they start telling me about things that would happen to them. Circumstances, you know, marrying the person that I love, getting the job that I want, getting out of the Harvard Business School with top grades, making the money I've always dreamed about, et cetera. cetera. They think about circumstances and achievements. And I say, wrong. And the reason is because your brain won't let that bring you permanent happiness. There's a concept called homeostasis. Homeostasis is the circumstance in which any biological or emotional process always goes back to its baseline. You have to be ready to go out of your baseline to deal with an, an, any weird circumstance. So, for example, if a saber-toothed tiger is ch- suddenly shows up, you better be scared and run away. But then, you know, two hours later, you need to go back to baseline to be ready for the next set of circumstances, like finding a banana on a tree or mating or, you know, the rhinoceros that's around the corner. We have to be ready so our emotions can't hang around. Well, what happens is, I mean, that's great. That saved your life a million times. But it's really terrible because Mother Nature lies to you and says, Joe, if you, you know, you make colonel and then you make brigadier general and then you're going to be happy, man. Then you're actually going to be happy. But Mother Nature is lying to you to keep you running. That's the hedonic treadmill. What will happen is you make colonel and then brigadier general and then, you know, then major general. And it's like, it's awesome for three weeks. But then you're back to normal because homeostasis says you can't stay out of your groove. That's the thing that happens, but we chase it. We don't know. The entertainment and marketing infrastructure is in is a tyranny and it's a it's a conspiracy with the limbic systems of our brains to make us think that that new car smell is going to last forever and it doesn't. Yeah, I remember I interviewed Wesley Schultz of the lead singer of the Lumineers and Wes was talking about when he started out, you know, they, him and uh, his partner, they were playing in people's living rooms. You know, he was working like odd jobs just just to play music, and they were like touring out of a van. And then uh, all of a sudden, he found himself like selling out stadiums, and then being like, "Hey, why isn't there wine in my dressing room?" And uh, he's, he was talking about his tour manager would always re- would remind them of that concept of the hedonic treadmill that you're going right. to get used to whatever level you get at, and it's not going to to feel special anymore. You know? Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, I'm a social scientist and I specialize in this stuff, but I fall prey to it all the time. I mean, I remember that, you know, it's, it's one of the, when, you're, when you write books, you know, you're, when you're a book writing guy, you know, the New York Times bestseller list is kind of a big deal. It's hard to get on. It's, it's like elite property. It's kind of like, you know, winning a Tony Award if you're on Broadway. And a friend of mine said, you know, look out. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you get number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And I'm like, yeah, let me try. I'll tell you. I'll, I'll let you know is what I said. And sure enough, this book comes out. It's, it debuts at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And it was awesome. And then it wasn't number one anymore. And it was some just <laughs> terrible book that, you know, that, and, and I'm thinking, that book is now number one. And I'm, and so being number two was bad enough. Being number two to the other book was even worse. And it's like, who are you? I said, looking in the mirror, like I have a, I have a PhD in this stuff. And still my brain was conspiring with the world and, you know, taking my piece away is <laughs> the bottom line. So one thing, you know, we're talking about the, the negative side of that. I'd like to talk about the positive side of that too. The fact that we always go back to homeostasis is that, um, uh, you know, j- just recently we moved to Germany, left our, our neighborhood of like five years behind completely, you know, we're in a new, new country. There's norms, like just going to the grocery store is an ordeal because we're trying to figure that out. 
And I remember we were like upset the first couple of days. And I remember that concept. And I was like, hey, listen, we are going to adapt and adjust to this. And as crappy as it is right now, a week from now, we're going to start like getting used to this, fall into a rhythm. And yeah. it's not going to be as wild and outlandish to us. So, so I think like is, you know, there's that side of it. And there's also the, hey, I'm going through a really rough patch right now. Yeah. Things are going to get better or go back to baseline. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you're, you're looking at the other side of the hedonic treadmill, which is that the bad things don't last just like the good things don't last. The bad things don't last. And this is one of the secrets is one of the reasons that, that senior citizens tend to be happier than, than younger people is because they have a lot of experience with their bad emotions. So people will often think that when you're really old, that you're less likely to be offended when somebody flips you off in traffic or, <laughs> or when, you know, somebody's rude to you on the airplane or when your kids forget your birthday or, you know, whatever. And it's not true. It turns out that you have the same negative emotions. But what happens with older people is that they have experience thinking like right now it feels like I'm going to be mad about this forever or I'm going to have my heart broken forever. But I know because I've been around for so long that in two weeks, I'm going to feel a lot better. As a matter of fact, in two days, I'm going to feel a lot better. So I'm going to get a head start. That's literally what you just did consciously when you talked about what was going on with your discomfort from moving to Germany. That's what old people just do. They, don't, they can't even define it. They just know. It's like, yeah, I feel crummy, but yeah, I'll feel better tomorrow. Let's get a head start. Now, the key, the thing that's hard to do is on the other side, because you think the good things are going to last forever, too, and you got a lot of disappointment when they don't. For self-discipline, the important thing is when you get that new car, when you get that promotion, when you get that raise, that thing that you really, really want, you got to think to yourself, this, too, won't last. So don't hang your happiness on this thing. Move on be part of ordinary life, sit down, have your supper like any other day, go to bed, don't stay up drinking champagne about this thing because if you do, the more you blow up your dopamine patterns inside your brain, the bigger the crash is going to be. So what are some of the, like when people are addicted to success, chasing those dopamine hits, like what are some of the things that you've found, you know, just day-to-day -day behaviors that, that you've seen even in yourself when you're addicted to success? So success addicts are just like any other addict. So let me explain that. Um, behind all addiction is the neuromodulator called dopamine, which is people often think of it as like the pleasure hormone. It's to begin with, it's not a hormone, but it's also not about pleasure. It's about the anticipation of reward. It makes you do something because you think the payoff is going to be so good, well, even if it isn't. So cigarettes, for example, nicotine gives you a lot of dopamine in its addiction but not that much actual reward. It's not like when you smoke a cigarette, you're like, oh, it feels so good. But you want it, want it, want it, want it. So it's kind of all anticipation and not very much payoff. All addictions have dopamine behind them, and they can be behavioral. And some of the behavioral ones are really nasty. One of the worst addictions that people can fall prey to is pornography. Pornography just messes with your brain. It turns your brain into a dopamine pump. It wrecks your you know, ordinary life. It can ruin your marriage. And the whole thing is because ordinary life doesn't give you anything good anymore. The only thing that does is sort of fantasy life, and you can get extremely addicted to it. Gambling is really tough, the whole thing. Uh, methamphetamine will increase your dopamine 10x. I mean, 10x. It's just like, it's wow. just this, this spray of dopamine going in. It just gives you all this anticipation. I got to have it, which gives you tons of craving. Okay. Now, what do a lot of people that wouldn't normally fall prey to stuff like, you know, pornography and gambling and methamphetamine and, and even alcohol addiction, what do they have in common often? 
Well, they come from good families, good families. Well, you know what good parents do to their good family kids? They say, you're the special one, Joe. You're such a hard worker. You always get A's. I'm so proud of you. And little Joe's like, oh, man, yeah, yeah. I mean, dad's not, mom's not proud of me unless I get A's. Mom's not proud of me unless I'm captain of the football team. Mom's not going to be proud of me unless I make full kernel. Whatever. And the point is that, you, that when mom and dad objectify you as a little success machine, you objectify yourself as such. And that sets up your dopamine pump just as if you were a meth head. To say, I'm not going to get the, I'm not going to get the jolt. I'm not going to get the cookie unless I succeed. So you go for the grades. You go, you don't go for intrinsic satisfaction. You go for external validation. You go yes. for the grades. You go for the rewards. You go for the promotions, the compliments, the followers on social media, whatever. That turns you into a success addict. And you might as well just be at AA because it turns out to be the same kind of monkey on your back. Well, now that we've spent the first half of this interview, Arthur, getting uh, probably a bunch of colonels, lieutenant colonels, maybe even some generals all riled up. Um, <laughs> what? I love you guys, by the way. Thank you for your service. I'm, I'm, I belong to a military family, too. I love you guys. I do. Thank you for paying your taxes, Arthur. Um, <laughs> but seriously, if someone's listening to this right now and being like, okay, like, yeah, yeah, I've been, I've been chasing that evaluation report. I've been chasing that next rank. Like, what should I be focusing on? Yeah, the, the key thing to start focusing on, number one, is that it is recognizing actually what's going through your head. The key to solving this problem is what we call metacognition. The dopamine pathways, when they go unrecognized, they're an entirely limbic phenomenon. Now, a tiny bit of brain science here. Uh, there's a part of your brain called the limbic system, which governs your reactions to outside stimuli. It gives you your basic positive and negative emotions, your anger, your fear, your your disgust, your sadness, your interest, your joy, your love, your natural love feelings. Those things happen to you. Also your cravings, your sense of basic pleasure. These are limbic phenomenon. These are the things that happen to you. If you can move the experience of cravings and desires and emotions to the prefrontal cortex, that's the front part of your brain, the human part of your brain where you make conscious decisions, then you don't have to be managed by them. You can manage your emotions. That's the reason that the Buddhist masters, they always talk about observing your own feelings. Sit at a certain remove from yourself and say, Joe is feeling sad right now. That's a, con a very common technique in, in meditation. Or journaling does the same thing when you write down the things that you're feeling. Now, what that does is that, that moves the experience of the feelings from the limbic system to the prefrontal cortex where you can manage it. That's what therapy is supposed to do. Some people love going to therapy. The reason is because they're getting a PhD in their own minds. If you have a good therapist, they teach them about you so you can manage yourself. That's what cognitive behavioral therapy is, just metacognition. So that's the key thing. If you are a success addict and you're going from thing to thing and you recognize that, look, man, it's got to stop sometime. I mean, the end of the road is going to come at some point. But you don't even know what that would mean, and you don't even realize why you're driven, and you're getting less and less pleasure back from these accomplishments. The first step is to actually understand yourself by making these things metacognitive. That's number one. Then there's a whole bunch of things that we need to do on top of that. But that is the first possible step. All of the ways to remediate the success addiction, they have everything to do with love relationships. What happens is that every addiction, what it is, is the biggest relationship in your life. So I know I've known a lot of, I mean, I was a musician for a long time. I've known a lot of people who take drugs and too much alcohol. I've seen it a whole lot. And what it is, it's a marriage. 
It's like your mm. girlfriend and your best friend all rolled into one, which is the reason that you'd love to have a day off and have nobody bothering you so you can just kind of hang out and drink. That's because it's a relationship. It, it's a love relationship. When you take that away, you need to put something in that slot in your life. So you metacognitively say, I got to move away from this. It's terrible. You got to put something else in that. And what you find is that most success addicts, they don't have functional love relationships. They generally don't. They have a lot of deal friends, but they don't have any real friends. And we know the difference. Everybody knows the difference between those things. Often they have kind of a desiccated marriage where, you know, your, your, your wife is kind of your, or your husband is your roommate. You might have a kind of a cordial relationship with your kids, your adult kids in particular. You got to reform all those relationships to start refilling those receptors, those slots in the love matrix in your life. It's the only way to do it. You talked about, uh, I want to go back a little bit. You talked about real friends and deal friends. And your son was the one that pointed out to you that uh, yeah. you, you had a lot more deal friends than you had real friends, right? Yeah, I'm not sure I had any real friends. So <laughs> so my son is he's, he's funny, he's like, a, he's like a little philosopher. He's, I got three kids. One is, uh, one is actually he's a Princeton guy, and now he's a math teacher. He's getting married um, the after tomorrow, as a matter of fact. And my little girl, she's in college in Spain, so she's an adventurer on her own. My middle son didn't go to college. He, you know, he finished high school and uh, became a wheat farmer for a couple of seasons, and then he joined the Marines. Right now, he's a scout sniper in the, in the Marine Corps. So it's um, kind of special ops. It's Category 2. And, and it's, it's very, very taxing and very adventurous. And for him, it's very, very fun. Now, he's not a meathead. He's like a, a philosopher scout sniper. And when he was a little kid, he would kind of analyze situations. He has kind of a canine sense of what was going on. And he would always do what anybody who's going to grow up and be a scout sniper in the Marine Corps wants to do. His only Christmas present every single year was he wanted to go fishing and hunting with his dad. Now, I'm a college professor, so you can imagine what kind of a <laughs> hunt, hunter and fisherman that I am. But I'm telling you, I'll do anything to hang out with my kids. That's so awesome. I said, absolutely. We'd go hog hunting. We'd go. And, and he was an unbelievable shot, which is, makes him a kind of a good sniper now. And, you know, what we were out just getting ready to go out on a lake bass fishing on one of these Christmas trips. Just the two of us. My cell phone rings. I said, ah, Carlos, I got to take this. I got to take this. Hold. He says, who is it? He said, it's a friend. No worries. And so I'm in the car and we're talking. I'm just talking. So how's your wife? You know, how's your small talk? Then we get down to business because this is a guy that I'm doing a deal with. And we do the deal. It takes like 15 minutes. And afterward, he said, is that a real friend? And I said, yeah, for sure. He's a real friend. I mean, we've hung out before. And he said, real friend or deal friend, dad? Mm. Mm. And, ah, not bad for a 12-year-old. Yeah, a little ingrate. And um, he wasn't wrong. And I did a little I did a little census across my friend group and I had a whole lot of deal friends. I was a CEO after all. It's kinda like being a, it's like it's like being a you know a lieutenant colonel in the US Army and commanding six hundred people. You're gonna have a whole lot of deal friends. Real friends are where it's at. This is about you, Arthur, <laughs> not me. <laughs> but re for people in charge, listen, my you know, my I admire you generals and colonels and people who are listening to this. I admire you, I admire you. Real friends don't come naturally. In your position, deal friends come naturally. Real friends don't. You got to do the work for real friends. Yeah. Could we talk about that a little bit too? Like one of the things that you've studied and you talk about it in the book is loneliness. Like lo yeah. we say like leaders are lonely at the top, but you, I mean, you actually, you were able to back that up with, uh, with research, right? Yeah. 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 And it's just, it's, it's manifestly clear. That when you have lots of deal friends and not so many real friends, you're going to be constantly surrounded and very lonely. There's just nobody who isn't lonely who doesn't have real friends. 
And part of the reason is because a lot of times their spouse is a deal friend too. And that's, that's not so great. Right. That happens too. So I have to do a lot of remediation. I do a ton of work. I've been doing a lot of work with military officers recently. Um, and part of the reason is because when military officers call me, I don't charge. Uh, I'm a yeah. pro-military kind of guy. But, you know, I'm working with a lot of CEOs and doing a lot of executive coaching. And, and this is one of the things that I find is that they're hopelessly lonely, even though they're never alone. And they have nobody to talk to. And, and look, it's not as if they're so worried about showing their feelings. That's like, I don't know, 1950. The point is that nobody wants to know the boss's true feelings. You know, people want the boss to be the boss. And, and there's nobody that's more objectified inside a company or uh, inside a battalion than the commander. Those are the people who are most objectified. They objectify you. Why? Because you hold their fate in their hands. You hold their success, their prosperity, their promotions in their hands. And so what are you? You're the, you're the benefactor. You're the, you're the, you know, the, the gift giver. And that's a, it's kind of awesome. So it seems, but it's actually pretty tough. So you're saying all my jokes aren't funny? Is that? <laughs> Your jokes are freaking hilarious, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so that's one piece, right? Is like looking at relate your relationships and making sure you actually have real relationships in your life, whether it's with a spouse or you actually have true friends that you can have real conversation with. What else can you do to start finding happiness? One of the things that you find is that a lot of people when they're in a, a very advanced leadership role like you are, your colleagues are, um, it's not the question of just not having a lot of deal friends. It's having lost the, lost their chops. Friendship is a hard thing. I mean, you went to, I think you went to the University of North Georgia, right? Right, right. And you have probably had a lot of real friends in those days. It was, it was awesome. It was awesome. I mean, it was like a lot of enjoyment is my guess is, you know, in, in college. And, and, and you probably kept up with some of them, but not all of them, right? Because it's just hard to do. Right. And one of the things that, one of the skills that really successful women and men tend to have is that they've, that they tend to have lost is their, is their real friend skills. They take tons of time. They require, you know, feeding and watering. Real friends are people that, you know, I'll often ask, how many real friends do you got? It's like, oh, I got, I got, yeah, I got Joe and I got Mary and I got, you know, and, and then I'll say, when's the last time you talked to Joe? If you're like, I don't know, like four months ago, not a real friend. <laughs> you don't, I mean, again, it might be your friend. I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions. But like my, my, I have three or four really close friends and there's one who's, you know, down near where you grew up in, in Atlanta. His name is Frank. And Frank and I talk one to two times a week on the phone. He lives in Atlanta. I live in Boston and we see each other as much as we can, but we talk all the time. And when we talk, we talk about our marriages and we talk about our children and we talk about our health and we talk about our Christian faith, which is the single most important thing in both of our lives. And we hold each other accountable to live better, be better people. Like he one time told me, he says, man, I don't need more friends. I need more people who are going to make me holy. <laughs> so yeah, the kind of guy yeah. this is. And, and that's what you need. And so it requires time and effort. And if all of your, if basically all you're doing is working, then you're going to be neglecting that incredibly important part of your life. Here's the way to think about it, Joe. You need not just a 401k plan to make sure that you don't retire poor. You need a happiness 401k plan. And there are four things, four accounts, four investments that you need to make, deposits you need to put literally every day. They're your faith, your family, your real friendships, and your work. 
Now, everybody listening to us is a hardcore striver. There's nobody's going to listen to this podcast who's not a hardcore striver. It's like, there's some slacker. I think I'm going to listen to Joe's podcast where I can feel like, a, <laughs> I can feel like an idiot. No, <laughs> if people are listening to this is because they can relate to the kinds of topics that you're talking about, super high performance topics that you're talking about here. Got it. Nobody here is under-indexing on work. I don't have to worry about that. However, I will say make sure that you know you're earning your success and you know you're serving people who need you every single day. Let's look at the other three categories because that's what all the strivers are under-indexing on. Faith, family, and friends. We've been talking about friends. We've covered that. Family life, I'm telling you, it doesn't take care of itself. How many people are like, yeah, my dad is a general in the army. I never really knew him. I've heard that story a lot of times. Yeah, we went from place to place to place. It was a really fun lifestyle, the whole thing. Yeah. Dad, dad who? Right. And and that that's tough. And the same thing is true with, you know, military wives. Very tough life. It could be a very tough life. And I know the stories of the enlisted people where it's a different set of circumstances. But for officers and officers being promoted who have careers in the military, they're married to their work. I mean, it's hard work, no joke. But you gotta put in the work. And then and then there's faith. And uh, when I don't, I don't, I don't mean my faith. I mean, a lot of people in the military have traditional religious faith. I've got that, but not everybody. The whole point is you need a transcendental walk. You need something bigger than yourself. You need to zoom out, whether you're reading the Stoic masters or, or, or whether you're analyzing the cantatas of Johann Sebastian Bach, or whether you're walking in the forest for an hour a day, um, whether you're running marathons, figure out your transcendent thing that's bigger than you, because if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. I love that. And, and we're winding down on time, but I want to talk about that for a little bit because one of the things that I fell victim to when I was coming up in the military was allowing other people to define success for me or to kind of draw my path for me right. and say, you got to do this, then you have to do this and you have to do this. And then like I would do those things because I was worried about what other people would think about me. But at some point, you've got to figure out what's that thing that ticks inside of you? What's that yeah. intrinsic thing that just gives you energy? Yeah. And it, I think it takes a little bit of courage to start following that yeah. instead of the, the definitions of success that other people make for you. For sure. Now, let me give you an exercise. Let's give our listeners an exercise in exactly how to do that. Because a lot of people are like, yeah, great. That's great advice. You know, <laughs> find, find your North Star, find your true North, man. And then it's like, uh, how, right? Okay. So let's be really, let's be practical about this. I have a, an exercise I give my students, which is called extrinsic versus intrinsic rewards. And this comes from a whole social science literature that shows that when you're pursuing extrinsic rewards, rewards that are set by others and that are things outside of you, you'll be very successful and it will be unsatisfying in the end. When you have intrinsic rewards, which as you just suggested, you find them in the interior, they're defined by you and they're inherently rewarding you will find lots and lots of happiness. Okay, so here's how you do it. So everybody who's listening to this and wants to participate, okay, get out a piece of paper. And maybe you're 23, maybe you're 43, maybe you're like me, you're 58, whatever, it doesn't matter. Imagine yourself in five years, okay? So five years from now, I'll be 63, which is like kind of freaking me out now that I say it, but you get the point. Five years from now, imagine yourself and you're happy. I don't have to tell you what that means. I can tell you what that means if you want, but it, you, everybody kind of knows at least what that feels like. You're happy. Now, make a list of the five things in order most responsible for you being happy. You're imagining happy, the happiest possible Joe 
in five years. How old are you, Joe? Were you 42 or something like that? I'm 26. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, uh, 19 I, years in the military, man. <laughs> let's just uh, let's just move past this question. No, I'm uh, I'm 41. Okay, 41. Good. That's sweet, man. Your your kid. Look at that full head of dark hair. I could be president of the United States if I looked like you. <laughs> By the way, to listeners, we're talking on Zoom. So okay, so. So you, you have the five things that are responsible for the happy version of you in order. Write them down. It's going to take a little time, okay? Now, look at that list and ask yourself, what am I most actively managing on that list? Am I most actively managing one and two, or am I most actively managing four and five? I, I'm confident that every striver listening to this program is managing things on that list. But I'm also pretty confident that you're not managing one and two. And here's the general reason. One and two are about love. Four and five are about success. That's why. And it's really unbelievably easy to manage your success. Strivers know how to do it. They know, they, they like, they're super good at pattern recognition. They know how to work systems. They're really charming. They're really smart and good at what they do. Blah, blah, blah. And so you're really good at making money or you're really good at getting promoted or you're really good at getting a command or whatever it happens to be. Those are things that you think are going to make you happy, but there's number, they may or may not, but they're number four and five on your list for a reason. Number one is like happy marriage. Number two is a good relationship with God. Number three is my children are well adjusted. How much are you managing those things? Okay. You got to make a strategic plan. The last part of this exercise, part three is make a strategic management plan over the next five years to manage to those goals. What are you going to do? In year one, that leads you to year five. Year two, that leads you to year five. For your marriage, what are you going to do about that? And it's not nothing because, you know, you might get there and you might not. You want to? Do you really want to leave number one unmanaged? That's insane. That's actually how you figure out how to find your true north and go and start walking toward it. Thank you so much, Arthur, for, uh, for that exercise. And uh, this has been an awesome interview. I loved it. It's an honor <laughs> for me. I appreciate it a lot. No, I, I appreciate it. If listeners are like, man, like this episode's hitting home, where can they find you? Where can they uh, learn more about your work? Thanks. I appreciate it. So I write a column every Thursday morning in the Atlantic called How to Build a Life on the Signs of Happiness. You can find all of it and more by going to my website, arthurbrooks.com, just like it sounds. I'm on social media, like everybody has to be these days, although it does not bring happiness. Um, and if anybody is, you know, all these young strivers that feel like going back and going back to graduate school, come get your MBA and do it with me at the Harvard Business School and you can study happiness with me and we can build a happier world together. Ah, that's awesome. One last question, we'll let you go. Arthur, clearly in your book, you're, you're extremely well read. And uh, on this topic that where like you can start finding some, uh, some meaning in your life, what are a couple of books besides From Strength to Strength that you recommend listeners pick up? Yeah, there's a lot that are really good. Now, there's some that my friends in the military really like that are both wise and useful, like Sun Tzu, for example, or you know any of any of that genre that people will often read. Or by my friend Robert Greene, who writes the, who wrote the Forty Eight Laws of Power. You know, that's you probably had him on your show, right? Yes. Yeah, terrific, terrific stuff, right? But if you want to go a little bit deeper into the kind of literature that you wouldn't typically see, what I would recommend is reading. I would actually go back and read the Stoics. Yes. I mean, read their words. Read the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. 
Yes. That's the first thing that I would read. And man, that is, it's going to, it's going to, we're going to rock your world. Read it slowly. Read two pages a day and think about them. Real quick, before you name the next book, I highly recommend the annotated version by Robin Waterfield. Yeah. Because if you just download a free version off the internet, it's just really hard to understand the context. But when you really understand the context and what he's writing about, yeah. Man, it, it hits home, especially for leaders. I'm sorry. It can I had be, to... Absolutely can be a game changer. Absolutely can be a game changer. And after that, uh, in the same genre, I would, leave, I would read Seneca's On a Happy Life. Yes. Because what he means is not happy feelings. It's how to, how to live like a happy person, how to actually do this. And he has, you know, the interesting thing about the Stoics is they're like, the Stoics from, you know, the year... 200 BC remind me a lot of elite military in the United States today. There's a lot of similarities. You know that they have good values, they have strong discipline, and they really want a better life for themselves and a better life for other people. And a lot of ordinary non-military people don't understand them. They don't understand what makes you guys tick. Well, you know what? Seneca, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and Cicero, they knew what makes you guys tick. And so that's the stuff I'd start by reading. No, thank you so much, Arthur. There's some, uh, some great recommendations. Well, thank you again so much for your time uh, this evening for me. This was a great interview. That's great. I appreciate it an awful lot. And uh, thanks for your service. And thanks to everybody who's listening for their service too. And best of luck to you this weekend on, uh, on the wedding. Hopefully it uh, runs smooth and get, you'll get all your kids together. Yeah, it's going to be great. You know, I love my daughter-in-law. She's the best. It's like I created her in the lab. The only thing I'm, the only thing I'm nervous about is the best man's toast at the, at the reception because it's being given by an active duty Marine. So you never know what's going to happen. That's going to go south real fast. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, have a good one, Arthur. Right on. Thanks. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud. There's